From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. With the Side of Knowledge is supported by Soren's Restaurant inside Notre Dame's Morris Inn, which serves breakfast and lunch seven days a week and dinner Tuesday through Saturday. If you see us recording, feel free to stop by and say hi, preferably not when we're chewing. A contributing editor at Vanity Fair, Bethany McLean was previously a reporter at Fortune magazine, where, in 2000, she received a tip suggesting she look into energy trading giant Enron. Her subsequent investigative work would lead to a co-authored bestseller that became the definitive account of one of the largest business scandals of our time. She has also co-authored a best-selling book about the financial crisis and written two mini-books published by Columbia Global Reports. Bethany visited Notre Dame as part of the Mendoza College of Business's 10 Years Hence Speaker Series, which explores issues, ideas, and trends likely to affect business and society over the next decade. We started our conversation with her experience covering the Enron story and other instances of, in her words, business gone wrong, before moving on to the new podcast she's developing, our disrupted media environment and the appeal of audio content within it, and that time she wrote a celebrity profile for the cover of Vanity Fair. Bethany also gave me the opportunity to make a completely organic reference to the movie Office Space, and for that, I will always be grateful. So, Bethany McLean, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. You're here visiting our Mendoza College of Business, and you're giving a talk later this morning called Two Decades of Covering Business, A Journalist's View. And in the course of those two decades, the thing you've done that's probably gotten the most attention was a very famous book, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which you co-authored with Peter Elkin and famously chronicled the rise and fall of Enron. How did your own involvement in covering that story, how did it start and then how did it take shape as this, as this whole thing played out? So I was a pretty young reporter at the time. I'd started at Fortune in 1995, and so my early years as a reporter were seeing Enron's rise. And it's not that it was such a well-known company, but they were thought to be this incredibly innovative company. In fact, Fortune magazine, where I worked at the time, had named Enron its most innovative company on its most admired list for, I think, seven years running. And I joked many times that Enron actually was the most innovative company in corporate America. And I mean, seriously, if you ever want see innovative accounting and financing structures at work. The thousands of pages that the bankruptcy examiner did on, on Enron are like a how-to roadmap still, um, although some of the loopholes have been closed. But but anyway, so I'd become, I didn't start out, I think, naturally skeptical. I grew up in Minnesota, and I think I have some components of Minnesota nice in my personality. But I had uh, written a column at Fortune called Companies to Watch, where I was supposed to essentially pick stocks. And I started to realize or learn the existence 
of what I've come to call the buy machine, which is that in the business world, unlike in, in politics, where there are two sides to every story and everybody's out there fighting and arguing about, about what it is, you can debate whether they argue about what's really important or not, but at least they're arguing. In business, there's a little bit of a um, three blind mice attitude, hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. It's, it's a little bit of if you can't say something good about somebody, don't okay. say anything at all. And the reason is that everybody's incentive is to see a stock go higher, right? And so I would get these pitches from company executives, PR firms, people who own the stock, investors who own the stock, and I would take them at face value, and I would write these little stories, and I have to apologize to anybody who ever took my stock picking advice. And um, <laughs> some of the companies turned out to be frauds because the companies most aggressively out there pitching their stories probably were doing it that for a reason. And I started to feel like I was a sucker, and I, I didn't want to be a sucker. And so I started trying to get to know short sellers. Um, and for those in the audience who aren't finance people, short sellers are the one set of people in the market who are incentivized to see a stock go down. That's how they make their money. And I view them as the market's policemen in many ways because they're, and people say, oh, they have an incentive to see a stock go down. They're biased. Look, everybody's biased, right? <laughs> and so what you want is somebody who's biased positively, who wants to see the stock go up, and somebody who's biased negatively and wants to see the stock go down. And then you can compare the arguments and you, and you, and you can figure it out. So anyway, back at this time, these um, guys, and they were usually guys, and still are, uh, weren't, weren't public. So you, you couldn't, it's not like you could just call up a well-known short seller and be like, hey, tell me about what you're working on. So I started working to try to get to know this this crew of people. And really, just from the standpoint of, I don't want to be wrong. Okay? I'm, I'm tired of giving people bad investment advice. If there's this other story about a company, then I want to know what it is before I write about it so that I can either not write about it or tell people what they need to know. And so I got to know a guy named Jim Chanos, who's one of the longest-running um, short sellers out there. And at some point, one of the guys who worked for him in the fall of 2000 said, why don't you take a look at Enron? See if you can figure out how it makes money because we can't. And I, I had an odd background for a journalist. I had worked in finance um, right out of college, and I was still fresh enough out of that that opening up 10Ks and 10Qs and building financial models was pretty much that second nature. And I'd had the great good fortune of working for somebody when I was in finance who would sit and do diligence meetings with companies and just say, show me how the money works. Show me how it comes into the income statement. Show me how it comes out in the form of earnings. Show me how it goes on the debt goes on the balance sheet. Show me how the earnings translate into cash flow. And I would sit with this guy for hours and hours, and so I knew how to think that way. The question, how do they make money, it's it's such a fundamental thing and in some ways seems so simple, but on the other hand seems like such a big red flag when you're looking at a company. And like you said, once you stop taking everything at face value and you kind of peel it back and say, well, it's kind of like that line in, in Office Space. I don't know if you know Office Space, but it's, what is it you'd say you do here kind of thing, and it's like... <laughs> Oh, no, no one's supposed to ask that question. Oh, that's, yeah, that's exactly it. But a lot of, you know, a lot of life is the lens through which you approach things, and you can never take that for granted, because I've often thought, well, what if Fortune had assigned me a typical glowing puff piece on, on Enron, and we're not going to, they wouldn't have called it a puff piece, what if I'd just been assigned a profile of this energy company, and I'd gone in cold without having gone through the financial statements and without having this perspective that maybe something doesn't add up here, what people what I've ended up writing. And so I think about that a lot. So much so much of life is just the perspective and, the, and it just points to a, a willingness to be open to different stories and not to go, to, to watch your own perspective, in other words. Is someone who was at a very, in a very humble capacity, but I was, I passed through the journalism world at, at one point in my life, and I would think covering a story, a scandal of this magnitude, 
would be could be both exhilarating and maybe low level terrifying at times because I mean you're dealing with with lots of money and people who I mean they've made lots of money building this thing. What was that experience? The actual experience of working on this story like for you? Well. The experience of working on it wasn't that terrifying because, honestly, I didn't think it was going to be that that big a deal. And so I I just thought, hmm, interesting. Something really doesn't make sense here. But I wasn't thinking this is going to blow up into one of the greatest corporate scandals ever. And, in fact, when I called Enron uh, before the story ran, I kind of expected they'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody raises these questions, whatever. Um, And instead, Jeff Skilling and the company's CEO got very irate on the phone with me and accused me of being unethical because, he said, if I had done my homework, I would understand how stupid the questions I was asking were. And my questions revealed that I didn't even understand the company well enough to be anywhere close to writing about them. And that's a really terrifying thing to be told because it actually can always be true. You know, no matter how much work you've done, you can't, you could be missing the point. And so when I finally wrote the story, I mean, I was, Fortune used to, would close on a Friday and the magazine would come out on Monday. And I remember getting a copy of the magazine and FedExing it to, to Enron, to their PR guy, because this was you know, in the days before things were online so that they would have a copy of it before anybody else did. And just being sick to my stomach for that entire time because I was sure I was wrong somehow, that I had missed something, that there was something so stupid that I was that I was not seeing. And so my fear wasn't so much business journalism rarely gets as glamorous as being afraid about your physical safety, right? But I was I was afraid of looking stupid. I was afraid of, of, of being ridiculous. Of, of, one, of having made a mistake somewhere in the story because it was a very quantitative uh, numbers-oriented story. But second was just of having missed it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's always a possibility, and you always have to keep that in mind. That it could be true. You wrote, also wrote a book about the financial crisis of 2008, and as a journalist, you have a longstanding interest in the words of your Twitter profile in Business Gone Wrong. And I, it, I read um, a piece that you wrote for Vanity Fair, I think it was in 2017, about all the allegations against Wells Fargo and what yeah. they were doing. And there was this line towards the end where you noted... Regardless of what happens, the story still tells an uncomfortable tale of how business, not just the business of banking, but all business, all too often works in the modern era. And and, and you've talked about it some here, but what is, to your view, what is that uncomfortable tale? When businesses go bad, so to speak, what is most often at the root of that? The problem is is the human cost of it. And look, I want to say I'm a believer in business. I actually think business done right is one of the transformative engines of the world, right, in terms of building things that change people's lives, providing jobs, everything else. But what I saw in the Wells Fargo story and what I see too often is let's call it a perversion of capitalism, right? I have nothing against an executive making an absolute fortune, an executive who takes up risk to build a business and bears the risk if that goes wrong. I have absolutely nothing against that person making a fortune. What I think is problematic is when companies somehow manage to shift all the benefits to the executives and all the risk to the people at the bottom of the totem pole. And that's what I wrote about Wells Fargo because they came up with a business model that forced the people at the very bottom of the totem pole without any power, without any people who are struggling to get by to take the risk of these really aggressive sales practices, which if they didn't do, that they'd, they'd lose their job. And the top people at Wells Fargo, deliberately or not, put in place a structure that insulated them from, from, from the decisions they were, they were forcing people to make. So they could make their millions of dollars in a relatively risk-free manner, while the person who was struggling to make $30,000 a year was the one bearing all the risk. And that, to me, is, is the ultimate symbol of 
of things gone wrong, when the people at the bottom of the totem pole don't get the rewards and are forced to bear the risk, and the people at the top of the system get the rewards and don't bear any of the risk. And you can look at the financial crisis as that as, as an episode of that in, in spades, right? Where the many people on Wall Street who bear a great deal of the responsibility for what happened kept their cushy lives and their job and their pay and, and the CEOs of the big banks kept 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 their jobs and the people at the bottom of the, the totem pole, American homeowners, who by the way bear some of the blame too in that. I'm not, I, but lost their homes, lost their jobs. And you think, wait, 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 wait. You've been telling these people all along, this is the American system, responsibility for yourself, no government handouts, you know, you do the work, you, and then it doesn't work that way for the people at the top of this, uh, the system anymore. What, what is that? I, I mean, I was really struck in reading that piece just to echo what you're saying there. And when you're as a reader and you really empathize with these people of like, okay, no, you, this is a real thing for you. You need a job to provide for your family. And as you said, all that risk and that burden of these unethical practices, it's being put on you. It's just person working as a local bank teller, which is... And she was making the point that as a notary, if she did anything that was even slightly outside the bounds, she could go to jail. And yet executives managed to put in place these elaborate structures with lawyers who make sure that, and accountants who make sure that everything they do follows the technical letter of the law such that they're protected from that. Mm -hmm. And yet the consequences of their actions are so so much greater. Mm -hmm. So... A little after that Wells Fargo piece, you wrote a very different kind of cover story for Vanity Fair. Oh, dear. I know it's coming. (laughs) That was about Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez. And I have to give you credit because as a Red Sox fan, I am duty-bound to automatically dislike anything about A-Rod that ever comes across. And I didn't feel that way reading your story. If He's like, oh, he's a relatable human being with hundreds of millions of dollars more than me. But so I I was a sign of a... (laughs) Of, a, of an engaging story that I felt that way, but I, I don't know how often in your career you've done kind of a celebrity profile piece like that. It was clear that you spent several days with them and observing them and talking to them. And I just want, like, what is the process of doing that like versus what you've done for the vast majority of oh your career. Oh my God, radically different, <laughs> radically different. It was actually funny. My editor called me up and said he had the story of a lifetime for me and it was this story and he felt like I, I needed to, to, to branch out. And I was like, well, you know, that that actually sounds like sounds like fun. But my husband said, do you even know what sport A-Rod plays? And I was like, uh, basketball? I don't know. <laughs> so, not a sports person. So I was reading about him on the plane out to LA to meet them. And when I got there, I thought to myself, I'm going to hate this guy because it was all about the steroids and scandals and 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 everything mm-hmm. else. And Arod in person couldn't be more different than he's portrayed. I'm, he's somebody who's learned from the mistakes he's made in the past or who has tried to learn from them and actively tries to be to be a better person. And I found the same to be true of Jennifer. I I clicked with her immediately. She's warm and real, and by the way, the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. But um, but but very warm and real. And I. I I really enjoyed my my time with the two of them, and I'll tell you two things that stood out about them. Everywhere I went with them, trailing around after them, if the two of them stopped to talk to someone, one of them would always turn around and introduce me. 
there's almost no executive I've trailed around after who would bother. That'd be like, yep. you know, little reporter off in the distance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that struck me, I was at J Lo's after party in Las Vegas after her show, sitting at the um, bar with 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 Alex, and he turned to me and said, "So, what about you? You know, how what was it like to cover Enron?" And again, I can count on one hand the number of times somebody I've been interviewing has actually said and displayed the human interest yeah. to say, "And what about you?" And so the two of them, not that I'm that interesting either, by the way, I think it just shows the side of A-Rat that he's very, he's very curious. He's always trying to learn about other people because he's trying to incorporate that into his own, into his own worldview. And I actually love their story of these two people who, yeah, made some mistakes and made some enemies and had come together over this shared, this shared experience. I enjoyed it. It was, it was fun. And I have to say, it was actually really fun to write a story where you didn't have to tell people in the top in some sort of lovely way why they should care because most of what I write there always has to be this paragraph at the top that's like and here's why there's this subject you might think is boring but it's really important and you have to care about and this was like oh I don't I don't have to tell anybody why they should care they're all gonna care anyway well I was scrolling through all your Vanity Fair articles I was like Oh wow, J Lo and A Rod. Okay, I'll definitely read that right I, I, now. I, I, I know. Even my mother, um, the other day when they announced they were getting married, she's like, "Did you get an invite? Like, who are you?" I grew up in a family without a TV set. I didn't even think my mother knew who J Lo was. I thought, "Oh my goodness." I totally hear what you're saying on that because one thing I've always said, just in my own little universe of, especially when dealing with people who most people I deal with are higher up in whatever kind of organizational food chain they might be a part of. I've always looked at how people talk to the administrative assistant when they walk into an office and do they engage with that person or do they blow by them or do they act like they have no time for that? And to me, that's always been so telling about what they'll be like to work with, what they're just like in general as a human being. And so you saying that, I mean, that especially the stopping to introduce you to people they're talking to Right. Um, Gra- um, gra- gracious, yeah. Graciousness and yeah. recognition on both their parts of where they come from. Yeah. That's really cool. Like I said, as a Red Sox fan, I'm not supposed to think about A-Rod and anything and go, oh, that's really cool. But I, <laughs> Sorry. I know. I, I, that's, that's great. I know. It, it, was, it was a fun story to read. And switching gears a little bit, you and I just kind of stumbled upon this when I was reading up on you before uh, doing, doing the show today. You recently appeared on an episode of the Recode Media Podcast at South by Southwest. It was about the business of podcasting where you introduced yourself as a prospective podcaster, which I loved. After listening to the episode, I think you may have undersold yourself a little bit, but I know you're kind of in the beginning stages of thinking about what you might do with the show, and I I think you're developing it for Luminary Media. Is that right? So. What can you tell us at this point about what you think you'll be doing podcast-wise? So I think the show came from, I I was talking to a friend last fall, and we were talking about what we would want to do, and I thought about how passionate I am about really well-told business stories, whether they're in the form of books or whether they're in magazines or whether they're even blog posts or documentary films. And I thought sometimes the really important stories don't get enough play. You know, we're all obsessed with the headlines or we're paying attention to Donald Trump and this these stories that are relevant to everybody who cares about business writ large, the economy, are kind of getting getting lost. And I thought, what if I could do a show that could combine my, you know, twenty plus years, scarily enough, <laughs> of covering this stuff with these with these really great stories and interviews with the author where I could sort of tell 
tell people in the world, here's this thing you might have missed that is really important and relevant, and here's what you, you should be paying attention to. And because I have these decades of covering business, I thought I could do a commentary that connects this story with larger issues in the business world so people understand why this great story is so so relevant and, and, and important. And through the process, hopefully get get exposure for the people who have done these these important pieces of work that may not be. So it's not going to be ripped from the headlines. It's not going to be the thing. I mean, maybe some weeks it will be the thing that everybody's talking about. It might be more the thing, the hidden gem that you didn't know about or the person who has insight into something into something really important. And I'll just sit down and do an old school interview with the author and hopefully, hopefully tell listeners something, not just a great story, but something that connects to these to larger issues in the business world. Coming from your background in print journalism and long-form magazine journalism, is there, and I, I think you alluded to some of this there, but is there something about podcasting as a medium that is particularly attractive to you at this point, given kind of what's going on in the in the media landscape? Well, yeah, the media landscape is scary, right? Yeah. And I don't think any of us knows what's going to happen. There are plenty of people trying to, to do things, but there's no question that audio is one of the things that is that is working, right? Where people, people do seem to gravitate toward audio. So whether it's learning how to tell what were print stories in audible format, or perhaps doing a podcast that ideally can, yes, be a platform for me, but also a platform to share other, if the podcast works, can be a platform to share other work and get more exposure for it. I think it's it's one way to experiment with the future, right? I mean, none of us none of us in the print media world wanted to be here, but we, we are here. I mean, an editor of mine was joking that it was really fun to cover disruption until we got disrupted. <laughs> That's one, one way, probably fair. But, you know, you can either just sort of hold on and try to hope that the world is going to change and print journalism is still going to be here, or or you can try to evolve. And I would like to be able to co- continue to cover things and tell stories for a lot more years. And so I'm trying to just keep keep that open. I think you're right. I agree with you. I mean, clearly, I'm going to say it's right if I'm the host of a podcast that I think... <laughs> there you go. But, but I... And I've, I've thought about this myself a lot. Why do you... And I, I think you all talked about this a little bit on that on that panel. Why do you think audio is something that is going through because one of the other panelists i forget what his what his name was but he was talking about there was this wave where everyone was convinced oh video video is going to be the thing but podcasting has podcast kind of bubbled up in the early 2010s and then kind of receded again and then the second time which doesn't really ever seem to happen like people have kind of passed on them and then all of a sudden these last three or four years they kind of come back with a vengeance and i agree with that idea like audio really seems to resonate with people in an interesting way and i'm curious what your thoughts are on maybe why that's the case i i I am always reluctant to think that my quirky brain translates to anybody else's brain so this is just personal opinion so i should i should be a little bit careful but i always felt with video that i'm captive i'm trapped you're trapped in front of a device watching it you can't do anything else i mean maybe i guess if you're more coordinated than i am you could run on the treadmill and watch your video at the same time i'd kill myself but but anyway but audio you can you can be in your car you can be driving you can be walking you can be you can be doing lots of things and walking the dog we were talking about our dogs earlier 
you're right. You we, see, you're, you're not. Although I don't, I probably couldn't walk my dog and listen to a podcast. <laughs> Should kill somebody, or I would. I don't know. But anyway, but but you can. You're not trapped with audio. It's actually freedom, and I think that's the difference. Is that video to me feels very confining and trap and trapping, whereas audio feels very free. And I think there's something about the intimacy of the voice in your ear. If you like the person who's the host, that it feels like a very one-on-one connection with it with the person that you're listening to. It feels like company in, in a way. And I, I think I think that's what, what makes it work. You talked a little bit about, actually before I ask you this, do you have a, is it still too early to say when that show will be something that people can listen to? Or? I think it depends on Luminary schedule okay. a little bit, but it's supposed to be late June as far as, oh, I, okay. as far as I know. And the name of the podcast is going to be Making a Killing. And so it's not always going to be a tale of business gone wrong because it might be making a killing in a, in a, in a good way, right? right? A business that's right. really succeeded. But it, but it might be making a killing in a more in a more negative way, too. Yeah. That's an awesome name. Thank you. Did you? Was that yours? Of no. course not. I can't name anything. <laughs> My publishers have come up with titles for all my books. I probably should. No, that's a great that, name. That's, that's a great that's name, though. Yeah, and Luminary is a, it's it's a new platform. I know there's going to be content that's proprietary to Luminary. You can listen to other shows from everywhere else on there. So that's that's very cool. It's an interesting experiment. Yeah. in the evolution of podcasting, right? So you talked there about disruption in terms of kind of how it's changed the economics of journalism. We're also going through this period where once upon a time the news we read on a day-to-day basis was by and large from written by people or broadcasted by people who were professional journalists i mean that was how you got your news and now we're in this environment where professional journalists are one option among many of how to get your news and their professional journalists are a source that sometimes are dismissed or even outright attacked as untrustworthy. Do you have any thoughts on where journalism kind of writ large is going? Because it's, as you said, it's not just a scary time in terms of economics. It's a scary time in terms of what the internet is and what it drives and the kind of behavior it drives. And it seems harder than ever for the people who are doing the real work of journalism to have their work be heard. I have so many thoughts on this. I'm not sure I can get them all out coherently. But on the positive side, I would say, I'll start with the positive. When I started in journalism, either you were a journalist or you weren't heard. There was that you were either a journalist working on staff somewhere or you weren't heard. And I think it actually really is positive that people with all these areas of expertise can get themselves heard through social media, through a blog post, through a contributor column somewhere, so that voices can be direct. And and I think that's I think that actually is a positive. I think on the downside, one of the things you're taught as a journalist is that freedom of speech comes with responsibility. It comes with responsibility for accuracy. It comes with, comes with most of all, responsibility for making sure that the people you're covering get a chance to comment before you write something. And that's always been the unfun part, right? I mean, it's, it's great to be snarky about somebody and come up with all these nasty things to say when you actually have to call them and say, that's the check, right? That's that's the check. You're calling on, Enron. That, that, that's the yeah. check on what yeah. you're willing to yeah. say. And I feel like that's gotten lost. The responsibility part of this has, has gotten lost, and that's 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 one place to start. And that's I think extremely un- unfortunate. On the bigger picture, I I don't I don't know. You know, when I worked at Fortune, it wasn't necessarily great if you didn't publish out anything for six months because you'd investigated something and it had turned out to be a dead end and the story didn't work in the end. But it wasn't a career killer either. I mean, you could do one great story a year, and if you're really going to do investigative journalism, sometimes that's what it 
it is. And you're going to go down rabbit holes that where you're going to get to the bottom of the rabbit hole and be like, oh, not only is Alice not here, nobody's here. Nothing. And so, and, and, and yeah. that you don't have that luxury today, especially as more and more of us are freelance. If you do that, it's on your time and, and your dime. And if you're on staff, there's a pressure to be productive that runs totally counter to that investment of time. And I find that I find that pretty frightening because I don't know how that kind of really detailed investigative work that may not pan out gets funded at the end of it all. And there are lots of people trying. So so maybe it's maybe it's gonna work out and, and maybe there'll be some kind of healthy fix to it. But I think I think that's scary. And I think the oddest thing about the ecosystem as it's grown up is that Google and Facebook would not exist in anywhere near their current form if it weren't for their ability to be parasites on the back of the traditional media which they're doing so much to destroy by capturing all the advertising revenue and by being so cavalier, Facebook in particular, as to really foment this massive distrust. And what does that mean, not only for business models, but for society? I I don't know. Yeah. It's fun stuff to end on, right? (laughs) Can we do something positive? (laughs) No, I was going to add, so you're you're working on launching this Making a Killing podcast. Are you writing anything right now? I am. I'm working on a piece for Audible, which is doing its own original content now, in mm-hmm. addition to publishing ebooks. And I'm still a contributor at Vanity Fair, mm-hmm. and working working on a piece there. So I'm I'm a little bit scattered, I suppose. That's a bad word. I have lots of interesting <laughs> things, lots of interesting projects. Does that sound better than scattered? <laughs> I think that's the right way to phrase it. I have lots of interests. I have my hands in a lot of different things. There you go. Is the is the project for Audible a book, or is it? So they're doing long, long form magazine stories. So longer oh, than a long form magazine story, but not not books. Yeah. Mike, Michael Lewis was the first one to announce that he was going to be doing what had been his magazine work for Audible, and so and he's done a couple of Audible originals. They're called. Very cool. That's awesome. Maybe and maybe that's part of because I, I think the the space for people who are investigative journalists or people who just do deep dive work like that hopefully maybe it's spaces like that where these things because as you said at the beginning the technology does enable it enables new things that we didn't have opportunities to do before so hopefully in the end the the good will outweigh the bad on that because it is i I, going back to what you said originally i think you're exactly right like you as a journalist you're you're taught that those words come with the responsibility and when you're just given the keys to the car without that responsibility it is a dangerous scenario but hopefully things like what you're doing with audible like that maybe maybe that starts to balance some of those things out well the nice thing is there's no there are no shortage of people trying new mm-hmm. things right entities trying new things whether it's podcasts whether it's what audible's doing scribd is doing something similar to what audible's doing in terms of publishing long-form original content whether fiction or non-fiction so there there are no shortage of because there's no shortage of demand for content mm-hmm. right the business model under which that content is paid for is broken because it was obviously an advertising driven model but the, the problem isn't the lack of demand for real content the problem is just figuring out the business model that supports it. And so I like to believe all of you clever business minds out there, someone should be able to come up with something. If there's demand for a product, somebody should be able to come up with something that makes it work economically. And I think I think it was you on that panel at South by Southwest making the point of, again, one of the nice things about podcasting is that it isn't a viral sensation kind of thing. It is something that 
stories you tell or when you're talking to these folks that are writing these business stories and then you're giving your commentary on it, it's 40 minutes, 45 minutes or whatever that lets you actually have a conversation about it and lets you talk to the listener in a way that you can't in a 200-word listicle or, or whatever the case might be. Right. I, I hope my great my great hopes for my podcast, if it works, is that it that it is really substantive and, and thoughtful, that it's the opposite of the hot take, yeah. you know, the hot take that yeah. is so prized today, and that instead it's a cooler, more reasoned, more more in-depth kind of look look at things and also that it just helps work that may not be getting attention to yeah. be to be brought to the forefront so that I can have a vehicle for reading a great piece by a young up and coming writer and you know saying this this needs to be this needs needs to be more important than it currently is being viewed as I look forward to listening to it thank it you. sounds awesome Bethany thank McLean you. thank you so much for making time for the show thanks for having <laughs> yeah. me with the Sign of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame with support from Soren's Restaurant. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast. <laughs>